get your popcorn ready. He is an extraordinarily entertaining and often funny political communicator. Hey, it's Johanna Masca, and on this episode of Press Advance, we're getting to know Chris Christie, the former governor of New Jersey, the former Trump whisperer, and now an ardent Trump opponent in his bid to become president of the United States of America. To get to know Chris Christie better, we talked to two people who have different perspectives on Chris Christie. Regina Ajia was a AT&T executive for 30 years before she worked with Chris Christie in his administration in New Jersey. She's still in touch with Chris Christie and supporting his bid for higher office. I also talked to journalist Matt Katz. All good journalists are designed to be skeptics, and he certainly is that. But Matt covered the good and bad when it comes to Chris Christie back in New Jersey, the scandals and the wins. I have found in speaking with people about Chris Christie, there are not a lot of people without an opinion. They either love him or decidedly don't. I started the conversation with Regina by asking her what drew her to work with Chris Christie. We're all very aware of him as a U.S. attorney, and he really made his presence known. And uh, we were quite, I think, as a resident, quite grateful that we felt like he had a very good sense of what's right and wrong and was pursuing uh, some cases that many people you know, thought should have been for a long time. So I liked his law enforcement and his sense of you know, right and wrong. And as I got more involved in politics, I learned actually at the local level that most decisions that have the biggest impact are really all made in Trenton. And it really matters in New Jersey because it is one of the strongest governorships in the country. It matters who's in that office. So that's really why I decided to get involved because I thought it really mattered that he could, uh, you know, be able to run the state and I think correct a lot of things that needed to be improved for our state. I worked on a political campaign. I worked with President Obama, and the tone was really set from the top with him. He would, you know, come on and say, like, at one point he messed up, and he said, you know, I want you to all know I'm not a perfect person. But you always have people who think they may be helpful, and they're not actually helpful. Chris Christie came into office, and he did a lot. One of the biggest things that he unfortunately is known for is scandal that now he's saying that he had no involvement in, Bridgegate. Tell me about that, because obviously, you know, we know that a bridge got shut down for some extended period of time. And in the aftermath, it was deemed that it was political. What, what would you say? Like, how would you tell the story of Bridgegate? Well, you know, first of all, I would say, you know, it wasn't really shut down, right? There were lanes that were realigned. I mean, that really is what happened. There was still traffic flowing. It was just the the, the access points were changed, uh, running theoretically, uh, presumably a uh, test. And, you know, I would say I have found a couple things about uh, the governor's character, um, as I said, you know, having come out of law enforcement. And, you know, I, I always felt he was very intolerant of gray. He's pretty black and white. And it's not, it's not that you can't make a mistake. You just can't make the same mistake twice. And so I think, you know, I think he, he actually, it's extraordinary record in terms of his selection of people around him. Many people stayed with him from the U S attorney's office into the governor's office, not all. And the people that were involved in, you know, that incident were none of which were from the U S attorney's office. So I would say that, 
you know, his, uh, he's always said, and I believe, you know, that he would never, um, you know, be involved in something that was at all gray. And, you know, those individuals, you know, would describe that they thought they were doing, you know, as you described before, right? They think they're working in your best interest, but they're making decisions that are obviously not in your best interest. And, uh, you know, he would never, uh, at least my experience with him, have, uh, have crossed those lines. So I think these were individuals who thought they were doing the right thing. They were misguided, obviously, and, um, you know, have paid an extraordinary personal price, but I think he's paid the most extraordinary personal price for something that he really never authorized. So let's talk about the things that he did as governor that aren't scandal or anything like that. Tell me about the the budget situation first with Chris Christie. What were his wins? Well, he continues to describe himself and he is a fiscal conservative um, and fiscally responsible and walked into a you know five billion dollar budget deficit on a base of about thirty five billion. So it was quite challenging in terms of really getting a hold of the reins of government. And New Jersey is, as you probably know, just enormously, uh, an enormous web, right? Of a lot of local entities, local schools, a lot of counties, authorities. So he really, I think, got the reins on the government. And that was very painful for a lot of people because they had not been used to having to be accountable to the governor's office for certain decisions. Um, probably the biggest fiscal impact was the pension and benefit reform. And those were two related but independent uh, wins. And I was in the treasurer's office during all of this. And uh, what I think it showed was, you know, his understanding that that was essential for the fiscal health of the state. So he was able to reach bipartisan agreement to uh, reduce the pension liability over $120 billion. He always said there was going to have to be more rounds of it. So he never said the job was done, but it was certainly a, a first step. How did he do that? Well, you know, he had a um, good relationship with the Senate president, and he, he worked on that relationship practically every day, to be completely honest. And he happened to be a union leader that understood pension and benefit, and he understood, you know, what the you know, long-term problems really were going to be in the... Basically, the pensions were ballooning, and the costs were ballooning, and it was taking from the state's budget overall, and the costs were going to be unsustainable. Did they decrease the pension, like not of the people who had already been uh, on their pension, but of younger generations? How did that shuffle out? You know, the majority of the improvement to the liability was really eliminating the cost of living adjustments in the future. So um, that was the, the big part of it. There are some on the margin, you know, in terms of age and groups, you know, that were affected, but no one was diminished in terms of their position in the pension system. It was really the cost of living adjustment. That was the majority of it. So you talk about police firemen, obviously critical to our um, everyday lives. So are teachers critical to our future. He did put in place some reforms, both when it came to the police. He's been talking about Camden. Tell me about that. Well, you know, 10 years ago, it was the murder capital of the country. And um, they had a police force that was, you know, not on in the community, uh, not obviously effectively policing to um, able to reduce the murders as well as other violent crimes. So the kind of the technical change that was made was the police force from Camden was eliminated 
and they were consolidated really into a county level police force. And all of the officers from Canada could apply and go into the county uh, police sheriff's office, but they had, you know, much better training. They also had much better principles about being out in the community, getting out of the cars, walking the streets, being, you know, part of the solution as opposed to really being, you know, frankly, not really helping eliminate the problem. So it was really the elimination of one, consolidating into the other, and which much better tactics, much better leadership as well. The leader of the Kendall County Police was incredibly a good partner and committed to changing Camden, which is now, you know, one of the safer, not not the safest, but one of the safer urban areas in the state. Hmm. So then on teachers, tell me, what were the education reforms? I know there was pension uh, work. Um, New Jersey is known to have good public education options. Yeah, actually, um, New Jersey and Massachusetts tend to be number one and two in terms of K through 12 and their, um, you know, achievement scores. And so we kind of go back and forth. But when you look at the cost per pupil, uh, Massachusetts is 20% less expensive than New Jersey. And one of the key drivers of that, not the only, but the key drivers are the pension and health benefits. Actually, health benefits are of note. They are, you know, what are described as platinum level with little financial participation by the employees. And that was really one of the other reform in terms of the teachers, but all of the public employees, right? They they were not participating in um, their premium sharing like we normally do, like in the private sector. So we moved to a, you know, 80-20. Now, by the way, that reform has been reversed by the current governor. So they've gone back to actually less participation in the um, selection of their um, healthcare provides. What would you say were the governor's big accomplishments, you know, that he should be highlighting as he runs now for president of the United States? Bipartisan achievements, right? He learned and is able. And and I think that's a real skill to figure out, you know, how do you acknowledge the other side's needs, but not compromise your principles and know when to settle? Um, never more evident than in the than the pension and the benefit reforms, because frankly, I mean, having watched on the inside, he gave more than he got, but he knew exactly when to close, and that was a terrific. And you see that again and again in different um, you know areas that he worked on some of the bail reform with the legislature and some of the um, you know other matters that that we uh, that that we were able to get through. Um, I'd say, secondly, the fiscal restraint. I mean, uh, New Jersey's taxes did not go up until we got to um, needing infrastructure investment. But he held the line. There were constantly tax increases sent his way, and he held the line and was able to get a hold of all the tentacles of government and manage the expense such that we didn't need to raise taxes. And in the end, when we needed the um, gas tax increased for infrastructure increases, we had offsetting tax decreases, estate tax, sales tax, veterans tax, EITC was improved. So he, even when he had to increase the tax, he understood how to offset it. The third one being, of course, what we talked about before in Camden and, you know, the appreciation of his uh, deafness in being able to understand a terrible urban you know, situation for those residents and for those businesses and figure a solution and again, collaborate on a bipartisan basis for the solution. So 
Why do you think he's running for president against Trump, who is someone who he had previously supported? I think he believes he'll be a much better president than President Trump was or any of the other candidates will be. Have you talked to him? Yeah. And what do you think he thinks his chances are? Do you think he believes that there's a lane? I mean, he publicly has spoken about New Hampshire maybe being the way that he could stand up the challenge. What's your impression? He wouldn't be doing it if he didn't believe he had a lane and he had the money, you know, to support him to do that. So um, he thought about it long and hard. Um, He didn't need to do this. He's a true, I believe, uh, you know, public individual who thinks he can make our country better. And I believe, you know, frankly, uh, you know, I I heard one of your other uh, podcasts with um, Governor Hogan and, you know, governors are well prepared that, you know, they have real executive experience. Hmm. Well, that'll be interesting. And I would love to stay in touch as that unfolds. So really grateful, Regina, for everything today. Me too. Thank you very much for having me, Joanna. Now I turn to journalist Matt Katz, who has covered Governor Christie while he served as governor of New Jersey and knows him very well. I asked him why he thinks Christie is jumping into the race now. Why not? I mean, there is really, from a, just a writ large perspective, no reason to not run for president in the United States in 2023. Uh, it, it gets your name out there. It yields all kinds of lucrative possibilities from book deals to TV deals to lobbying deals. Chris Christie made a ton of money during the Trump years, in large part because he ran for president and stayed in the public eye after he lost. And by staying in the public eye, that meant that he got a $400,000 a year gig on ABC News just to be a weekly pundit on Sundays. He was paid $400,000 for that? Wow. The second reason is, I think, is that he thinks that if somebody of a Republican other than Trump were to win, that he would be shortlisted for VP, as he has twice before, or attorney general, which are two jobs he would love if he didn't get president. And then the last reason, part of him really thinks he can win and become president of the United States of America. I want to kind of go through the different people that Chris Christie is. You know, Chris Christie, Mm. the person, Chris Christie, the governor, which was evolving in and of itself. Of course, I was working with President Obama at the time that he toured Hurricane Sandy with uh, Chris Christie. Um, and bro hug. (laughs) Bro hug. Heard round the world. Right. I I was in Asbury Park. Uh, in 2013, 10 years ago, this was after Superstorm Sandy. Obama had come to the Jersey Shore right after the the storm, as you know, and delivered all this federal aid. And Christie praised Obama on Fox News and gave him this bro hug that became a huge problem for Christie when he first ran for president uh, back in 2016. And then Obama came back to the Jersey Shore and they did like a joint rally together, which is like mind boggling. From the perspective of our politics today, that a sitting Republican governor with presidential ambitions and the sitting Democratic president uh, uh, hanging out together and and praising each other. It was was a sight to behold. I can understand it. And I do. I remember all of this, not least of which, you know, all of us planning during Hurricane Sandy, because, of course, it affects 
affected Washington, D.C. Also, there were a number of hurricanes that time frame. Um, And, uh, you know, I can understand from President Obama's perspective when he's running and he's trying to draw moderate Republican support that he's, you know, courting that. But it was always curious, you know, why Chris Christie chose to do that. And if there was some bad blood with Mitt Romney or... What, what was the reason? Maybe for his own popularity's sake? Because you mentioned you know, his popularity was low. 2012, Christy almost ran and decides not to. And then Mitt Romney put him on the shortlist for, for uh, VP and he just lost out to Paul Ryan. Mm. So he was, he's, been, he's been a bridesmaid, but not the bride twice when the <laughs> VP stakes. Um, so Christy doesn't run for president in 2012 and endorses Romney and campaigned like crazy for him. But Superstorm Sandy happens a week before the presidential election. And so Christie's off the campaign trail and he's down the shore and he's on Fox News then praising Obama. So that got, he got a lot of shit in national Republican circles for that, but it did wonders for him in New Jersey. And he won in a landslide the following year when he ran for re-election as governor. People saw him as somebody who put politics second to what was best for the people in New Jersey. They really did. They, they, there was a sense that he would might be bombastic. They wouldn't agree with him necessarily. It's a very blue state. They didn't like that he closed Planned Parenthood clinics. They didn't like that he uh, his stances on guns and things like that. But they thought that he would do what was what he thought was best for the people of New Jersey. And as evidenced by his you know, stewardship of the state after Superstorm Sandy. And so, you know, it, th- th- that like relationship really worked well for him from a political perspective at home, if not at a, from a national perspective. And, and it was, it was, a re- you know, it was really remarkable to see him praising Obama on Fox News. Yeah. Can right you, I before mean, the election. I know. <laughs> yeah. He said, he said, if you, he said, and because he was asked about the election, he, he said, if you think I give a damn about national politics, at a time like this, then you don't know me. He was like, he hadn't slept. He he was on Fox and Friends. He's got he's got this raggedy fleece on. He, in, in you know the the he's at the command center. The half the power in New Jersey's out, and he looked and he was angry. It looked like he was like you know carrying the weight of the people of New Jersey on his, on, on his shoulders. You've covered him. You know him. Who is Chris Christie, the person at his core? At his core, you know, Chris Christie at his core is a. He's he's a political animal in that he loves the game, he loves the process, he loves the perks and the schmoozing and the potential of the winning. He has, you know, some interest in policy. He is not one of these people who's just necessarily putting always putting his his um, finger in the air and seeing which way the wind blows. He'll he'll read, unlike the former president, Trump, he he will read a briefing book. He will understand an issue inside and out. But he also is not at all above taking those, making those political choices that are void of ideology and are just intended to do what is best for him and maybe what's worst for his political enemies. And then there's his uh, weakness when it comes to the political sphere. And I think that often is... The fact that he's into the the stuff. There was a quote in the Times several years ago when they did a story about him that said 
that he had said he likes to squeeze all the juice from the orange. Um, so that means when he got a trip on Sheldon Adelson, the deceased uh, Republican billionaire donor, when he got a flight on his plane to Israel several years ago, he also made sure to pop over to Jordan uh some taxpayer expense and party with the King of Jordan and for some reason Bono in the desert and then come back to New Jersey and talk about it. At his announcement in New Hampshire, he talked about how he had met the Queen. He loves loved to take, uh, he took a helicopter early on in his term in New Jersey. It became a mini scandal to go because he wanted to see his son's baseball, Little League baseball game, but then he also wanted to meet donors from Iowa uh, in advance of a potential run for president back at the governor's mansion to get there. It was easiest to take a state-funded helicopter, and he used to do that all the time. So he loves the perks that come with being famous, that come with being in the political arena, and he loves the strategy involved. He loves talking the political gamesmanship, the chess game of it all, and then a piece of him, depending on the day, also, I think, believes in democracy and policy for the betterment of the American people. What percentage of, of him believes in that? Uh, that's I think that's debatable. Well, and you mentioned his uh, lucrative contract on ABC. He's had kind of a an interesting relationship with the media. I mean, he considers himself close with, I think, a lot of media. Is that accurate? Like, how was he as a governor, even running for governor? How was he working with media? So from one perspective, he's was great for media because he is a just uh, supplies so much content. I mean, you know, he'd have a press conference about one thing uh, back when he was governor and we would all, the reporters would all leave the briefing room with like so many other stories because he said something outrageous about a Democratic legislator, or he went off on John Boehner, the Republican Speaker of the House, or he said something hilarious about the Mets. I mean, he just was a content machine, which made him quite from a professional perspective, enjoyable to cover, right? He was never boring. On the other hand, with the local press, he had a constantly antagonistic relationship. I mean, he would berate individual reporters. He would make fun of individual reporters in public, in private. Um, his press team was quite aggressive. They would, you know, if there was something reported that they didn't like, they would go after you big time. He had what was known as the penalty box, where he literally would not. I was in the penalty box a couple of times because of something I reported on. He he wouldn't look at me at a press conference and would not. I had my hand raised and would not answer any of my questions. What were you in the penalty box for? Like, what was the question? Do you remember? The last time I think it happened twice. The last time was related to Bridgegate, mm. the scandal that ultimately ended that phase of Chris Christie's political career. And we were extremely aggressive on Bridgegate and covered the hell out of that story. And I had been, I think it was something I said on TV about it that he did not like. And I don't remember exactly what it was, but I was in the, uh, I was in the penalty box. So we had this antagonistic relationship with uh, local reporters. Sometimes he'd call and get into it with us. But with the national media, he has cultivated a far 
um, friendlier relationship. There was a, a budget address, a New Jersey state budget address he was doing toward the end of his term as he was preparing to run for president. And there's a tradition where governors do interviews around budget time with the local press, like individual interviews, so they can pitch their budget and answer other questions. You get a half hour or so. He did not allow any local media to talk to him before the budget address. And then we we got wind that there was a bunch of Washington Post and New York Times and uh, national TV reporters that were in the governor's office meeting with him. Uh, he has cultivated relationships with national political reporters on the record and off the record um, through the years. And I think that's served him well. He has certainly gotten outsized national media attention um, throughout his career. Uh, he's been on the cover of the New York Times magazine, uh, I think more than once. He's been on the cover of Time magazine. I mean, this is a governor of the 11th, I think, largest state who came in sixth place in New Hampshire and never won a delegate in a presidential election. He he has certainly gotten far more attention than the governor of North Dakota, who's also that's, running for president. That's right. You know, before he ran for governor, uh, George W. Bush had appointed him U.S. Uh, attorney for the District of New Jersey. And in that, he actually has some background with Donald Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner. Oh, yeah. Tell me about that. Oh, it's such a crazy story. Christie's the chief law, federal law enforcement officer in New Jersey and made his name as U.S. attorney by really going after political corruption. New Jersey is a notoriously politically dirty state, and people in New Jersey hate that and want it to be you know, cleaner. And politicians are constantly going to jail in New Jersey for all kinds of stupid stuff, usually taking small amounts of funds in a lunch bag at the diner to buy off a planning board member for a development. That's usually the nature of uh, the schemes. So Charlie Kushner is the biggest donor for Democrats in New Jersey. Uh, Christie's obviously a Republican. And he has a rival, Charlie does, in his business operations. He's a huge developer. So his rival is his own brother, and his own sister. And there, there was a family business started by their father, and the business starts to splinter. And Charlie's in a business dispute, and he's also super politically involved. So he hires a prostitute to sleep with his brother-in-law, and he's going to because his brother-in-law was not on his side in this business dispute. His brother-in-law was on the side of his brother. So his brother-in-law is married to his sister. So he has hires this prostitute. And he hires somebody film this encounter, and he's going to send it to his sister. To try to get to his sister on his side. <laughs> wow. And blackmail. This is Jared's father, Jared Kushner's father. So uh, Charlie hires this prostitute in New York, but the deed doesn't go down until a little bit later on in um, New Jersey. So it crosses state lines, which makes it a federal crime. And uh, Chris Christie, this this case comes uh, before his desk, and Chris Christie works with the FBI, and they eventually um, file charges against Charlie Kushner and get a conviction and send Charlie to jail, prison. So this super wealthy, big-time developer in New Jersey, top Democratic fundraiser, goes to prison in New Jersey, and shortly after that, Charlie's son, Jared, marries Donald's 
daughter, Ivanka. And that became very strange, obviously, during the Trump years <laughs> for Christie and the Kushner. For the one, Christies and the Kushner. As one might think, if you uh, had the history where you put someone else's dad in jail for hiring a prostitute and a camera crew to create adultery, um, compared to that, Chris Christie actually looks pretty normal because he's just getting like an ABC $400,000 a year right. deal. I got to say, Matt, for normal people, like sometimes when you actually start digging into this, you're like, oh, my God, th- this is all insane. Like This is, I know. <laughs> this is all insane. It really is. But truly, like compared to that, Chris Christie, you know, just trying to hang with the the King of Jordan seems right. you know, I mean, there, there relatively were, reasonable. Were, <laughs> for sure. I mean, there were this, several other scandals during the governor years. You know, there were accusations. There was Superstorm Sandy, as you know, um, and there was a ton of money came to the state for rebuilding. A lot of accusations that Christie was funneling funds to contractors to do the rebuilding that were political, based on political connections, not on the fact that these people could actually do the work. And then there was, of course, Bridgegate, which was I referred to earlier, which involved his aides closing lanes to the George Washington Bridge, the busiest bridge in the world, to cause this huge traffic jam in the town where the bridge sits, Fort Lee, because the mayor of Fort Lee did not endorse Christie's reelection. This was a crime. People were ch- federally charged for this. The Supreme Court ended up overturning it and saying it wasn't a crime because no money was exchanged. But it came out under oath that clearly this was a retaliation scheme. And there was testimony to the fact that Christie knew this was happening, at least while it was happening, while this four-day, five-day epic traffic jam was going on, kids stuck on school buses, ambulances unable to get to scenes of emergencies. So that that scandal was pretty screwed up, but also by comparison to the scandals we've seen over the last several years and the accusations of scandals over the last several years emanating from the White House, it seems like pretty minor league. Um, the only other scandal that people will remember of Christie, at, at least around the country, is uh, Beachgate, where there was this budget impasse with the Democratic legislators and the Republican Governor Christie. And instead of like being in Trenton, you know, negotiating this impasse, he allowed state government to essentially close, and that meant all state beaches were closed. And um, Christie was not in Trenton negotiating an end to that. He was instead on the one beach that was open, which is uh, owned by the state of New Jersey, but it's where the governor's beach house is. The governor in New Jersey, for some reason, gets both a mansion and a beach house down the shore. So he was sunbathing with his family and their friends on the beach on the Jersey Shore when the rest of the beaches, the rest of the government-owned beaches, were closed to the public. And then the Star-Ledger, the local newspaper, flew a helicopter over, took a picture of Christie bathing, and that picture became – it was the end of his time in office. And it's the reason, I think, that he left office with the lowest approval ratings of any New Jersey governor in, in recorded history. Uh, and that's something that got national play, and I think some people – Uh, may remember that around the country. I was curious, you know, what does Chris Christie's political future look like if Bridgegate never happened? At one point, Trump is said to have said that he wouldn't have run for office if Bridgegate hadn't damaged Christie. There was one poll taken in December 2013 that showed Christie was the leading Republican candidate for the 2016 nomination. He was beating 
Jeb Bush at the time and a bunch of other candidates. This is Trump was not pulled. Bridgegate, the smoking gun Bridgegate came after came out right after that. And then of course Trump jumps in after that. So conceivably, we'd be talking about you know the end of the Chris Christie's second term in at the White House at this point if Bridgegate hadn't happened. I mean, it's potentially that consequential. Now, if Trump ran anyway, it's I you know Christie would have been more popular. He would have gotten better press. His name wouldn't. It it did lead to a whole. The local media and national media digging of Bridgegate did lead to a whole other slew of reporting that uncovered other scandals in the administration. There was a guy in his administration, a, um, a political mentor of Christie's, who had a basically blackmailed United Airlines to get a special flight from Newark, near where he lived, to South Carolina, where this guy's vacation house was. That information only came out because of Bridgegate. So there was um, scandals related to sort of grift and low-level corruption that only were uncovered because of Bridgegate. So certainly the scandal like tarnished his, his name nationally, and that affected his presidential prospects. I don't think he could have beaten Trump in any universe. But if Trump hadn't run, and if Trump only ran because his friend, because they were friends, wasn't in trouble because of Bridgegate and decided Trump was like, you know what, I'll stick with this guy, he'll be president, and then he'll hook me up, and um, I won't have to worry, you know, I won't run myself, we'd be, it'd be a whole different universe we'd be talking it's about. It's an interesting point that Donald Trump and Chris Christie were friends before. What cemented that friendship? What's the roots of that? You know, they they both like to collect famous and powerful people. So Trump's sister was a federal judge in New Jersey, and Chris Christie was the new US attorney. And Trump obviously has had business interests in New Jersey. He's got these, he had these casinos. So he calls his sister, he's like, uh, set up a meeting. So his his sister set up a dinner for for Trump and Christie. I think the wives were at that first dinner. Um, and this Which was wife um, about for 20 years Trump? ago. I was gonna say it was, Good question. Uh, it was Melania. Oh, it was yes. already Melania. Hmm. Yeah, I okay. think it, yeah, I'm almost positive it was already Melania. Yes. I know that Chris yeah. Christie is a big fan of Melania Trump. He's said as much um, yes. over and over. So they meet. And yes. um, is it a marriage of convenience? You know, is it something where, because obviously Donald Trump had business in New Jersey. For sure. I assume all politicians are, are having transactional <laughs> friendships uh, with any, everybody they meet after they've kind of gone to politics. I, I just have to go by that assumption. That's the cynical uh, reporter in me. I think it was a, yeah, a, a relationship that they both saw could be potentially fruitful. The one, one funny tidbit, Trump ordered for Christie at the meal. And I don't know if that happened at every meal, but he literally ordered his food. Trump ordered Chris Christie's food. Yes. Like he was taking him on a date. Like it was 1955 <laughs> and he was taking him on a date. <laughs> what is, it, it like was checked it at out, the right? Trump hotel or? I believe, I believe it was at So he yes, was like, you know, was. I'm going to take care of you. He <laughs> was like the host, I guess. What, yes. So this was about 20 years ago, like 2003-ish? Yeah, because yeah, it was when it was early on when Christie was U.S. attorney, which, which was, was in the uh, first 
uh, bush term. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So then, you know, Christie seems to be a good investment over that dinner and the like because he becomes governor. He leaves the governorship. Basically, Chris Christie was a wise investment for Donald Trump. Years later, of course, Chris Christie runs for president. As you already mentioned, uh, he's damaged because of Bridgegate. Donald Trump decides to get in. And when Chris Christie decides to drop out, he endorses Donald Trump, one of his very early establishment endorsements, and then a continued ally throughout the entire Trump term. Tell me about Chris Christie as the Trump whisperer. Yeah, I mean, the the relationship had its ups, ups and downs, but I mean, it, Christie, I, I mean, I think he was the first establishment Republican in the country. I mean, he was the first presidential candidate to endorse him and the certainly the most important Republican to endorse him first. And I mean, there might have been one or two uh, minor elected officials elsewhere who had endorsed him at that point, but it was very early on. And it really like gave him a stamp of establishment approval. I mean, Christie was the head of the Republican Governors Association. He's an establishment Republican, right? And and so it was a very big deal. And then Christie was with Pence, uh, the last two people on the shortlist for VP. Mm. And he didn't get that. And then he was uh, the the consolation prize was that he could be the chairman of the transition team, but the likes of Jared Kushner, who obviously hates Christie, Christie put his daddy in in prison. Steve Bannon, I believe Christie blamed. Um, they got him fired as transition chairman, and threw out this like detailed policy book that Christie and a former chief of staff of his from New Jersey had put together, and threw it in the garbage, as Christie describes it, and. Also damaging to the Trump administration because they came in there blindly with with no policy plans, as Christie describes it. And this was all, you know, VP also likely scuttled by the Kushners too. So he doesn't get VP. He doesn't get and then he and then he wants AG. Yep. Doesn't get AG. Yep. So he doesn't. He gets. So he loses VP. Fired his transition chair. Doesn't get AG. Gets offered a couple of minor things. I think labor secretary. At one point, Trump wanted him as chief of staff. Yeah. It was his like third or fourth or 90th chief of staff. Christie said no to that. He said no, but he details that. And I think it's interesting because he essentially says in the process, he was saying he wanted to make sure that the RNC would pay for lawyers for him should he take on the role of chief of staff, which I guess other can't because Mick Mulvaney ended up taking the spot. And I've talked to Mick Mulvaney and Mick said he did not actually get lawyers. He didn't even ask about it. He just got himself insurance. (laughs) Just like just telling of that administration, because I only knew like maybe one person who had uh, like insurance uh, policy when we were all working for President Obama. (laughs) That's incredible that you would need insurance. I guess you I mean, that it's a crazy job to take. That is a crazy job to take. And I think Christie didn't see how this could in any way help him. But he's remained affiliated and as an unofficial advisor, as the chair of an opioid task force, he was getting all these lobbying deals because of his relationship. And then he played uh, Joe Biden in debate prep leading up to 2020. Um, and it was in apparently in the course of those sessions, 
and a meeting in the Oval Office when Trump apparently, maybe the timing seems to check out, gave Christie COVID. That's what he says and for sure. <laughs> he says he thinks that happens. And because of the way they, everybody in that room got COVID after Trump. And then Christie got quite sick. He was on, he was in the ICUs on a vent. Um, he says a priest came in to his hospital room, almost died. So there, that happens. But Christie doesn't jump ship yet. He says January 6th. And Trump's handling of that is what made him decide that Trump um, really should not be considered for another term in office. But I guess I don't know how Chris Christie emerges even to get on the debate stage in this Republican nomination. What is he thinking now? It's interesting because he's running actually a more moderate campaign than he did in 2016, even though the party seems ideologically more extreme, at least the, the, the people who vote in primaries and caucuses. So I, I do not see how he's been talking about you know, helping blue cities in New Jersey and running on a record of bipartisanship. I, he's not even talking the same language as so many Republican voters. So I do not see the path I do think, though, he can get on a debate stage, and he thinks that it, as long as he can get on the debate stage and get that national audience and punch Trump in the nose several times and make him look foolish and incompetent, he thinks he can somehow emerge as the Trump alternative and then clear the rest of the field and then somehow squeak by. Matt, I am so grateful you joined us. You know, any last things that we really need to remember about Chris Christie going into this, like if he emerges on the debate scene, you know, if he uh, manages to, you know, see some momentum, what should we know about him? Just get your popcorn ready. He is an extraordinarily entertaining and often funny political communicator. And regardless of how you feel about his politics or how you feel about some of the allegations of, you know, grift that we've talked about, that will and that will certainly be thrown at him. He's if you step back and watch a Republican debate, you're if you want to be entertained, you're gonna want him on the stage because he might be our, our best uh, political communicator out there, with maybe the exception of your, your former boss. Thank you so much for joining me. It was truly a pleasure. That's it for our episode on Chris Christie. I think there's a lot of interesting uh, things about Chris Christie, and he will certainly, if he makes the debate stage, keep it very interesting. I do wonder whether he can lure Donald Trump there. As always with Press Advance, we work to respect, empower, include. We want your thoughts. We want your opinions. Find me on social media at Johanna Masca. Follow us, subscribe, and share wherever you get your podcasts.